0: This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The psalmist wrote, I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day. And then the psalmist said, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things written in your word. Today, We are asking the Lord to open our eyes to see the treasury of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And what is faith? What is faith? Well, that's the question that Hebrews 11 addresses. And throughout the entire chapter... We just hear answer upon answer upon answer, cascade upon cascade, crescendoing until we see Jesus himself, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 11 is one of the most beloved chapters in the Bible because it projects pictures of faith. It describes what faith is by showcasing the lives of both Hebrew and non-Hebrew people, as we'll see. So let's just dive in and get to work in Hebrews chapter 11. A a few preliminary statements before we get to our main outline. And, And the first statement is this. As you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, or uh, pull up that scripture on your phone if you would. I I want you to know that the preacher is not moving on from another topic out of chapter 10. So chapter 11 is not something new. No, no, no. No, in, in chapter 10, verse 38, the scripture says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And the preacher also said that that the church is not the shrinking back kind of church, but rather it is the moving forward kind. And what's the difference between shrinking back and moving forward? The difference is faith. Faith, that's the difference. The righteous will live by faith. So, So what we're talking about here is a specific dimension of faith. And specifically, we're talking about Persevering faith, persevering faith, faith that helps you persevere public reproach, Uh, faith that strengthens you as you are called out by an ungodly culture and publicly remanded because of Christ, faith that empowers you to, to joyfully accept the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession. And an abiding one that's the that's the quality and the robust nature of faith that we are being invited to acquire here from these verses so so we're not moving on uh, to a new topic in chapter 11 we're simply developing what has already been established specifically in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38 my righteous one shall live by faith and what does that look like chapter 11 Tells us. Now, as to these names, and this is the second matter that I want to discuss before we move to our main outline, these names, as we shall see, were not distant spiritual gurus. They're, they're actually quite ordinary people. In other words, they didn't have they didn't ask to have their likenesses hung on the walls of some portrait gallery of believers. They're not, not, they were not spiritual superstars, and and they, they, they knew nothing of our current culture's unhealthy preoccupation with fame. No, each and every one of them were people with just the same broken, fallen nature as ours, because that's all God has to work with, see? So... So, and then on that note then, that leads me to this third matter is that, is that so, so, so we're not changing topics from chapter 10 to chapter 11. And, and, and these, these, these names are not spiritual gurus, they're ordinary people just like us. And then thirdly, the people of God who appear in this chapter, they're only representative of believers. So they're not the only ones. The preacher himself says he doesn't even have time to list all the names that he would have liked to have listed. What's significant in these verses is that they lead us beyond their lives, ultimately to the life of Christ. So chapter 11 crescendos until we get to, to this fixed gaze of Christ. So the main point as we consider these verses is not to merely look at these faithful but to look with these faithful i want you to see who they're seeing and who they're seeing is is nothing less than the exalted christ and we need to see and we need to hear their lives so that we know what endurance looks like persevering faith enduring faith patient faith, especially under persecution. This church in Hebrews was struggling in the first century with their faith, and how do we keep going on? When the culture just keeps pounding at us to conform conform conform, and the answer is we endure like they endured by walking as they walked and looking to Jesus as they looked to Jesus, by faith, by faith. So with that in mind, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. I want to read those verses again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So as we consider these verses here this morning, as we study verses 1 through 4, I I want us to think about three facets of faith. I want us to think about first a definition of faith. We're going to define what faith is, the definition of faith. And then I want us to see a congregation of faith, a congregation of faith. And then thirdly, we'll see the cry of faith, the definition of faith, the congregation of faith, and the cry of faith. That's where we're going today. First, the definition of faith. What is faith? Faith faith is trusting what God has said. There it is. Faith happens when I commit myself to the Lord based on his word. Based on his word. Uh, our big idea could be put this way. Faith is resting my life on the reality of God's word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now that's not so much a, a communicated as a dictionary definition. It's more like a proverb, right? Because it's a Parallel. You have the parallel there: assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. But this is how faith works. This is how faith works. Faith is substantial, and faith is convictional. So faith has substance. In fact, some of your translations will say faith is the substance of things hoped for. So it's 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 um, it's. Uh, Objective. It's out there. It's based on reality. You just can't see it. And then that, that objective, substantial dimension of faith gives me subjective certainty and conviction. So faith is both objective and subjective. It's both substantial and Convictional. Faith is what happens when I rest on something I can't see, but am nonetheless convinced of its reality. So, 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 Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is described as the present experience of the substance of a future reality. Future reality, that's that phrase, things hoped for. And the future reality becomes, in some measure, substantially present. That's what faith is. It's it's the experience of that substance. It sees, or rather you could say it tastes, the present reality of the thing hoped for, The, the, the spiritual unseen reality Becomes by faith real and substantial the, the coming glory and worth of Christ are known as real in faith Now so it's experiencing a taste of heaven in the here and now faith Faith literally the word faith is the is the word from is the word pistis pistis and it means that which evokes trust It's the state of trusting the reliability Of the one so trusted so we're not talking about well if I just believe in pink unicorns enough then no 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 because there's nothing reliable about that that's just fiction no 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 faith is substantial faith is reliance on an unseen reality a reality more real than I can see and taste and touch and that's the claim of Christianity, that a blade of grass in the new heavens and the new earth. And spring is coming. We'll get to see those blades of grass. But the blade of grass in the new heavens and the new earth, oh, is by far greater and more beautiful than anything in our world right now. See? So 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 faith, faith is faith is not passive. Faith is an active exercise. Faith is not blind faith is informed faith is exercised I'm thinking about um, How I exercised faith? about uh, five and a half years ago almost six years ago now I, I I had to exercise faith when I had to choose which doctor would remove the cancer from my body and so I spoke to the doctor I wanted to know how, how many times have you done this surgery? Right? And then I spoke to my primary. Right? Do you trust this doctor? Is this the doctor you would go to? See? And then I spoke to some of you here in our church family in the medical profession. And I learned all I could, had a big thick folder. <laughs> and then after all of that, with your prayers, and me on my knees, and Sarah with me, I made a decision, and I committed myself, you see. So, so faith is not something theoretical. Faith calls for commitment. I've gotta commit myself, you see. And here, here I'm committing myself to the words and wisdom of God. So faith is not blind. Faith is informed. Faith is informed. And did you notice from verse 1 that faith and hope are closely linked. The assurance of things hoped for. Because you see hope springs forward from faith. And hope lives based on the substance and the quality of faith. So hope looks ahead, and hope anticipates the promises of God. Hope assures us, hope assures us that this life is not all there is. Hope promises that I will see my loved ones in Christ again. Faith trusts God's word, and hope anticipates the fulfillment of God's word. And that's what each of these in chapter 11 were known for. And so as we start through this this catalog of persevering faith, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the author doesn't begin with Adam and Eve. Did you see that? No, no, it doesn't even start with Adam and Eve. In fact, in fact, The author does not even begin with able. Yeah, yeah. The author jumps straight to we. We. And that takes us to, from the definition of faith, to the congregation of faith. So so the preacher is addressing the congregation first. I think... I think this is so because the preacher wants to make sure that the congregation knows that we're not talking theory here. You're involved in this chapter. The church's very existence is evidence that faith rests on the reality of God's Word and that God's Word, God's Word which called the universe into existence, God's Word called this congregation into existence. Isn't this why we're here? Because together we believe and are fixed on Jesus. We trust God's word. The word which spoke the unseen world into being is the word that has brought the congregation into being. And so the preacher declares that this congregation is a part of this genealogy of faith, this family of faith. And like all the other names here, this tiny house church, quite likely in Rome, holds the creative power of God's word, God's hidden craftsmanship, fashioned and sustained all of life god did this we've not seen god but we trust his word we see evidence of his fingerprints throughout the world and 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 so faith allows us to perceive and understand that this is not just random chance this design comes from a designer this creation comes from a creator and brothers and sisters i can tell you this much Simply trusting God's Word and what He said. Faith is resting your life on the Word of God in a way that radically changes your life. That's about as simple as I can put it when it comes to defining faith. And the miracle of Christianity is that we've come here as a community to declare this truth. Faith is depending on... On God's Word we're here because we need God's Word we need God's wisdom I'm not talking about faith in faith and I'm not talking about being the kind of person who's the believing type I'm talking about being a congregation that believes the testimony of God's Word and it radically has altered our life it's trusting that the God who made this visible universe by his invisible words, is the God who has come to us in Jesus so that, hear me now, so that we don't have to climb our way to him. God in Christ has come to us so that we don't have to climb our way to him. Faith, faith, faith in Jesus deconstructs the religious ladders we are often tempted to climb in a quest to God. I, 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 I worry that there may be some here who think that this worship service experience is, is but a ladder to climb in order to get to God. And, and our culture likes ladders, right? Right? Right, there's the corporate ladder, there's the perfect parent ladder, there's the perfect student ladder, there's the college acceptance ladder, there's the 401k ladder, and each ladder has its own rungs like the right skincare regimens regiments and, 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 and so, social media likes and self-care practices and workout routines and weight loss plans and every round goes higher and higher. And if I can just do the right stuff, eat the right stuff, avoid the right stuff, say the right stuff, do enough, make enough, try hard enough, perform well enough, then, then we'll just reach the top of the ladder and be holy and happy and be enough. And that's the heart of human-based religion the tendency to make anything a ladder, we like to make ladders, and we do this to established religions too, and maybe, maybe, maybe you did come here today thinking that, that this is one of the rungs of the ladder, that you've got to climb in order for God to love you, and, and, and you know, I'll be the first to admit, like all climbing, there's a rush to it, right, there's a rush, yeah, yeah the rush is that we have the power to climb our way to heaven or happiness and then and then but then there's also this relentless pressure to it that can leave us weary of the climb and then and then of course there's the fact that the higher we climb the farther we fall yeah yeah I, i'm curious i'm curious did did when adam and eve reached for that forbidden fruit Did they use a ladder? (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus promises, I've come down to you. I'm with you. I'll remain with you, and I promise I will bring you home. This is the good news for barren, broken climbers, and it's this. God is not waiting for you to climb up to get to him. (laughs) God in Christ has come down to us. God is here with us at the very bottom. Is that not good news, church family? Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, this congregation of faith realizes that their strength is not going to be in their effort, but in God's strength, who has done for them what they can't do on their own. So our definition of faith has led to a congregation of faith and now we hear about the cry of faith. You see there in verse 4? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. Still speaks. Genesis 4 tells this tragic story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. And both of them were born after the fall, so so they were born with sinful natures, even from their mother's womb. And Genesis 4 tells us that... um, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And God called them to give an offering in worship and Cain's offering came from the fruit of the ground while Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. But these gifts received two very different responses from God. Scripture says that the Lord had regard. For Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now what was the difference? Why did, why did God commend Abel as righteous in accepting his gifts, while Cain received no commendation? What was the difference? Well, you can probably figure out a lot's been written about that. And um, I've been convinced by an old pastor who lived about 1,600 years ago, or 1,400 years ago. His name was Gregory. He was the Bishop of Rome. And this is what Gregory said about this particular passage of Scripture from Genesis 4. This is what he concluded. He said, it was not the offerer who received approval because of the offerings, but the offerings because of the offerer. Do you get that? Let me say it again. It was not the offerer who received approval because of the offerings, but the offerings because of the offerer. So, so in other words, Abel's offering was accepted because Abel was accepted. Let's see. And Cain's offering was not accepted because Cain was not accepted. And, and why is this? It comes down to this one word faith. Faith. It was his faith. Through which Abel received approval from God as righteous, so so the integrity of his heart was really what mattered, and and so Abel is the first example beyond the congregation of Hebrews chapter ten, verse thirty eight. My righteous one shall live by faith. So so faith is not saying yeah I believe and then going out and living the way you want. Faith is not uh, is not you know. Detaching your Monday through Saturday from your Sunday worship experience because faith says, all of my life is worship to God. Faith, so just like oxygen is life to your physical body, faith is life to your spiritual body. So so faith is the heart deep belief that God exists in a way that dramatically changes the way I live. And that's that's what God was trying to say to Cain. To obey is better than sacrifice. And God had said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if not, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. You must master it, the Lord said to Cain. But Cain did not want to master sin. And instead... He murdered his brother. And if you go to Genesis chapter 4, you will notice that Abel never speaks until his death when the Lord says, Cain, your your brother's blood is crying from the ground, you see. His, His blood was crying out to God for justice. And then, verse 4 has this fascinating phrase which concludes our passage for this morning. It, It says, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks present tense. Present tense. So my question is, what is, if Abel is still speaking, what's he saying? What's he saying? I think we can hear him say at least at least three statements. Statement number one, the world will hate you because of your love for Christ. Just, just get used to it. The world will hate you because of your love for Christ. God, I don't know why my brother hates me. God, why does he hate me so? God, where are you? God, I trust you. God, it doesn't matter what happens to me. God, I love you. I depend upon you no matter what. God, even if I suffer death, I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm going to keep depending on you, even in death. Yeah. Uh, And as Abel was the first to experience death, he was also the first to enter the heavenly kingdom. Think about that, yeah. yeah, He's still speaking. He's saying you're gonna, you're gonna have to lose your life if you love Jesus. In 1 John 3, 12 and 13, the apostle said, we should not be like Cain, who was, one of, the, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So so Abel was the first to discover that all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. If approval from this culture is what you seek, you're going to quit your faith. Or at the very least, it will be seriously hampered. But if you are persuaded that true approval is given by God, in your case, as in Abel's, then you are going to have the substance upon which to stand upon with which you can endure. So Abel's life is a vivid reminder that the righteous suffer and die, and yet by faith, Abel is still speaking, which means that death is not the end of the story. That Abel is still speaking means he's alive he's alive so so he's saying he's saying if you want a godly life in Christ you're going to be persecuted he's saying that and then here's something else he's saying he's saying that a faith-fueled heart is commended by God over a heartless offering a faith-fueled heart commended by God is better than a heartless offering. So, so it's significant that we don't have nitty-gritty details about either Cain's and Abel's offering in in the story. I just imagine Cain trying to win God's approval with maybe an impressive-looking offering. It could have just easily have been a stingy offering, or or could have been an exactingly precise offering. But the point is that right from the beginning, God draws the distinction between what the world says matters versus what God says matters. And your heart matters to the Lord. And Abel is still saying a faith filled heart matters more than a heartless offering. That's what he's saying. But then there's a third statement that I believe we can hear Abel say. And this is going to hurt. Genesis 4 teaches us that though we'd rather see ourselves as Abel, we're really all Cain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we were at one time enemies from God. We were at one time hostile to God. At one time we were alienated from God. And Abel, the very first martyr of faith, is a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin. But Jesus' innocent blood cried out for mercy for sinners. Abel's blood exposed Cain in his wretchedness. Jesus' blood covers our wretchedness and cleanses us from all sin. Abel's blood cried out, God, give me justice, because Cain knew exactly what he was doing when he killed me. But Jesus' blood cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Abel's blood sent Cain out as a wanderer and nomad, but Jesus' blood has brought us and gathered us back as family heirs of God's kingdom. That's good news, is it not? The definition of faith, the congregation of faith, and the cry of faith. And, so, and, and here's the connection between all three of these stories here. When there is genuine faith, that faith translates into genuine community as God's people gather to do life And worship together and then that translates into a community where the Holy Spirit produces real life and authentic righteousness and all of it is under the commendation of God commendation commendation appears three times in these four verses do you see that commended or commendation what does that word mean? Well, literally, literally it's actually the word for witness or testimony in a court of law. So imagine you are on trial for your life and there are witnesses that are trying to speak on your behalf, but they just don't seem to be getting the job done. But finally, the back doors open And God Himself enters and He walks down the aisle and He takes the witness stand and He testifies as a key witness on your behalf. And His testimony makes all of the difference. It changes the trial in your favor. God testified. He declared you innocent by the better blood of Christ and you have been acquitted. You're free. You can go. Now what are you going to do with that freedom? Believe. Believe. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine. Can bear me safely through. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy, my life.